let's talk. Let's 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 come back together. Let's come back together. So they are Mike Runners, Marcus and John Paul. They they ready to uh, come to you if you for like if you have an insight or question. Um, so let's go right here. I'm gonna apologize in advance because my voice is gone. But uh, mm. don't you know, apologize for that voice. That's nice. No, no, this is uh, this is not my normal voice. It sounds great. All right. Um, you know, this first part is actually really troubling to me. And usually I actually quote this a lot when giving encouragement to people when there's a breaking of relationship. Hmm. Uh, that is to say that it isn't like God stopped being with Barnabas when he went his way yep. and stayed with Paul when he went his way. But just the, the narrative of the breaking of relationship, you know, two people that we associate with each other, Paul and Barnabas, now going their separate ways is a... A very difficult thing to read like it deserves like a like a pause yep. and to like really think about what's really happening here you yep. know I, they both go on to do great ministry but even the reasoning for their break is something that i'd like to just i'm curious about what how you're going to preach this <laughs> no pressure got it i'm just going to skate around that i'm not even going i'm messing Pausing but that, that's a that's a very good a very good uh a very good observation i think it's i think it's a i think it's good for us i think it, I, I really appreciate luke for including this that he doesn't he doesn't try to like this acts is not necessarily a prescription other than a description of like this is how the church was this is how god moved and i think it's something in that for us it's something in that that they would go into this mission there would be a breaking relationship and that's how it would start like they're sent with this unreconciled uh, out of this unreconciled moment. And I do want to talk about that a little bit. Um, I found the passage just, to me, it was kind of troubling about when I think of Paul and mm -hmm. how I think of Paul. Because first off, he doesn't want to have any grace for John Mark. And then secondly, he just got the word that, okay, we're not going to require circumcision. We're having grace through Jesus. And his first thing to do is to take a grown man and circumcise him. So when he had a chance to that one to step, you know, to stand out on grace. So I just thought that was kind of odd for the way I think of Paul. Didn't seem fitting with. Yeah, him. yeah. On the first read of this, this is it's very troubling. And I, I saw that too. I was like, wait, they just came to agreement. You don't need circumcision. Then the first thing he requires for Timothy is, okay, you should be circumcised. It seemed like he's a hypocrite. Um, and then Paul, who who. After reading this, I went back and like started reading some of his letters. I was like, man, Paul is not a not like a he was he, he for me he was like the prototypical missionary. This is how you should be. But then I went back, you know, this time was Paul's like, should I come back and should I bring a whip to you? Like, should I do that? Like, it's some things that he said that we look and I think we romanticize it, but it was actually hard to deal with. Um, and let's not forget, before Paul started, there was he was. Um, he was a persecutor of the church. Like he was zealous for the uh, for the persecution of the church. Um, who who's in here? Team Barnabas. Who's just like Mark should be restored. Paul has no pastoral bone in his body. He is not being like Jesus. Who's like Team Paul? Like no, the kingdom is at stake here. Like Jesus just just went back up into heaven, and and what we know is that there's gonna be persecution and martyrdom that's happening. Saying Jesus is Lord means Caesar is not. So what we do know, you're gonna encounter some deep life-threatening friction. Why would you take Mark? 
Who's who's on that? Who's right there? That's like gotcha. <laughs> After I described some the Mark people, y'all y'all hands kind of went. Y'all the Paul people hands kind of went down. That's okay. I I think there's something in that. I'll talk about it in a bit. One more. Who where we at? So I'm totally team Barnabas. Barnabas, One, yes. because I was Mark, because I left the underground before we were the underground. Okay. And so sometimes people need time to think mm-hmm. about and ask questions and try to figure out what is God calling them to do. And when they do come back, they should be received because it does take time sometimes to, to jump into a new thing that Ooh. we have never done. And you telling me we're going to do the underground. I need some time to think about that. So I had to leave. But the second thing is um, in regards to Barnabas and Paul, Paul discipled Barnabas to hear from the Lord, to be a leader. And I'm proud of Barnabas to not just be like Paul is saying, you know, we're not going to do this. And Paul was like, no, 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 but I think it's right. And so it cut this, 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 point comes when you are being discipled by someone and you're no longer their disciple you are not yeah like there's a there's a leveling that happens where you are both leaders now yeah yeah Yeah. and and the tension i feel for for barnabas is he could have easily said okay paul i'm gonna just stay back i'm gonna i'm gonna take a couple of steps below when god is calling him to do and to lead and to now disciple someone else Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Barnabas stood up for Paul when he was like the church, the the, the disciples wouldn't accept him. Um, like Paul was most recently known as a persecuted church, and Barnabas was like, "No, God has done something. We should accept him." Um, so it seems like Paul might be smelling himself a little bit, right? But then again, Paul most just recently, if you remember, when he went to Iconium, was stoned for like preaching the word, like people turned on him and he was stoned to where they thought he was dead. And, and I think Lucas talked about this and, and, and then they had to lay hands on him and he got back up. So it's like Paul probably bears the wounds of what it takes. He, it was him who said like it takes, it's a lot that we have to go through to enter into the kingdom. Like he has the wounds of mission, like what it looks like to sacrificially give your life uh, physically holy um, to this mission of God, and yet he was deserted. So he's dealing with some stuff. I actually believe this passage, uh, like the, the, the word for us, is not whether Paul or Barnabas is right or wrong, because we could go through many a debate about who's right and who's wrong. Um, I actually think what, what the issue is is that both of them, they rub something in us. There's something in us that thinks, whether we say it or not, but there's something in us, and I like to call it our formulas for what it looks like to do good mission, what it looks like to be a good leader. We have these formulas, and, and these things, they, for me, I have these formulas, and, they, and they don't, they're not realizing until I see something, until I see Paul, what I think, like, smelling something, like, is this right? Is this thing actually Right. And these formulas cause us to look at the world, to look at Jesus, to look at um, to look at those we are called to, to look at the mission of God in a certain way that I think could be a little wrong. So I want to talk about, like, what is your formula for the kingdom? 
What do I mean when I say formula? I was speaking to a guy. I had, I had just got done speaking at a conference. I was speaking to a guy. He said, man, I want to be a warrior for the Lord. Like, I was like, yeah. Like, we was having, it, the, the conversation started building up. He was like, I want to be a warrior for the Lord. I'm like, this is my kind of dude. He's like, I, I want to really uh, do do everything for the Lord. But I got a, I got, I got a question. He kind of gets silent. Um, and I'm like waiting for this deep question. He goes, when I pray, should I, re- like, should I refer to God as Jesus or the Father? And I was like, I was waiting for, I was like, is that your question? Like, is that what you wrestling with? Like, you want to be a warrior for the Lord, and you're wondering, like, do you got that right? Like, am I praying, when I pray, do I say Jesus the Son, or do I say God? And he was serious. Like, I, like I want, it's one of those moments where you want to laugh, but then you see the person is serious. like, oh, like, I need to, like, be in this moment. Uh, and I started to talk to him. I started to say, man, look, like even when you pray your best prayers, it's like it has to be uh, interpreted by the by the Holy Spirit. But then I was like, I don't that's in the Bible. But I don't know if I remember quite whatever it is. So I was like, I tried to like just go. No, simply put is this. The grace of Jesus is afforded to you even in prayer. And you need to accept that. Know that. He believed, but he believed there was a formula for prayer, a way to do prayer that made your prayer reach God the right Way. But in the end, he simply needs to know grace. Similar to him, I have ministry formulas. The ministry formulas are the conditions, the limits, the rules that we believe have to be in place for ministry to get done. A way, it, it is a way that we think this is how ministry is supposed to go. And in most, com- in most cases, uh, we think this is what has to be true in order for ministry to get done the right way. I believe this passage messes with our formulas, our formulas for leadership, our formulas for mission. And lastly, it calls us to join, I would say, a work that that uh, that 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 completely uh, pushes aside our formulas. It tries to work into building what I like to call a third culture kingdom. So first, let's look at uh, verses 37 um, through the first half of 40. Well, Barnabas wanted to take John, um, called Mark, uh, with him. And this, you know, Mark actually ends up becoming the writer of the book of Mark. Um, he wants to take him with him. But Paul was like, nah, this dude deserted us. Why would I take him with me? Um, we're trying to encourage the churches. We're not trying to bring a deserter. That's, that's, my, <laughs> that's my inference into the passage. And they said they had a sharp disagreement that so sharp that they parted ways and they went different ways and Barnabas took Mark and so Cyprus and Paul took chose Silas and left with him the whole central situation I think it grates against my leadership formula here's my leadership formula my leadership formula says this uh, first in my leadership formula the leader has to have no deep recent maybe even long term but no deep moral failure or sin that's like primary in my, my leadership formula they need to be a great strategist also, they need to be a great visionary. Also, they need to be super humble. And all the time, uh, they need to be super humble all the time. And they need to be super well-read or knowledgeable. And maybe also be a pretty good communicator and then also flexible. That's what a leader looks like. That, that sounds okay, right? That sounds great. Now, y'all say, oh, that sounds like a lot. But how many of us just like, yeah, yeah. As I was going, when I started, it's like, yeah, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, yeah. Then I, the list got longer. It's like, yeah, oh, wow, that's a, that's a long list. But what kind of leadership do we see in Paul and Barnabas in this moment? They are stubborn, very opinionated. They are not reconciled in their agreement, so much so that they split up. But more than that, what about Mark? Mark is sent as a leader. Mark is a deserter and a, maybe the most influential, one of the most influential leaders of this time. Paul has no trust in him, and yet they allow him to go. 
Paul and Barnabas's current behavior and the person they're arguing about, Mark, do not fit my leadership formula. According to my formula, no one in this passage should be leading right now. They need to delay this trip. But they don't. They don't press pause. They go. This passage does not give us insight to the particulars about how the desertion happened. I don't think Luke is concerned with that. Luke rather, the writer of Acts, he rather just gives us a basic understanding of the conflict. And the one true inference that we can make is that imperfect leaders are blessed to go. That God uses imperfect leaders. And I know this sounds simple, but I think in practice, it's, it's more difficult for us than the simplicity of the concept. So my wife is named Stefania. She's a beautiful Haitian woman. And if you haven't seen a of recent, man, she cut her hair. I don't know. I, I can't go there. Sorry, I got lost in my wife. So, um, but Stefania, I've been, I, there's, there's moments of leadership in our relationship that have happened. And I haven't been the best of leader. Uh, I remember one time I took her on a date. We were dating. And I was like, man, I'm going to blindfold her. And I'm going to lead her like, to this special place. Um, uh, and so uh, I didn't think it through. So I blindfolded her. And I pull up. We, we, we park on the road. And it's a busy intersection. So I'm like, trust me, Stephanie. So she gets out. And there's like cars with her. She's like, what are you doing? Where am I? I'm like, trust me. And so I, I, I'm like, I don't, I'm not even thinking she's blindfolded. She doesn't want to go. And so she's literally walking like this. Like, what are you doing? And so I'm like, I, but I take her hand and I lead her across the street like she's not blind. I'm just thinking, oh, she's going to walk because she trusts me and I'm, I'm a good, I'm leading her. So I start, I'm taking her across the street, but she's going and, and there's like a car coming. I'm like, you got to go. You got to go, babe. We got to go. So so she's like almost falling. She's in nice clothes, like heels and stuff. And so she's like almost falling. Um. And then we, we get across, and I just hop up on the sidewalk. I was like, let's go. And I don't tell her, hey, there's a curb there. And she bit it. She bit it. I, that's my leadership. So I, I, I remember one time on our honeymoon. So we were on our honeymoon. We got, we got married in, in oh, when was this, 2006. And we went on our honeymoon, and I was like, they were like, I, I went to one of those kiosks that had that that gets you like cheap tickets. I was like, oh, I can get a cheap tickets to university. Like, all you gotta do is come to this presentation for a timeshare. I was like, sure, let me do that. So there's like, yeah, and then they start asking me questions. Do you make thirty thousand dollars or more per year? I was like, oh, my inner varsity salary. Ugh, that ain't. So, sure, I make thirty thousand. <laughs> if you count, I don't know the parents, the money my parents might give me. Uh, so I tell her we're doing this, and so I'm like, Stefania, we gonna go to university. All you gotta do is we just gotta come to this little presentation. So halfway through the presentation, Stefania's like, what in the world have you got us in? If y'all don't know what this is, it's like. They try to really, they try to bull rush you, like bull sell you into getting a timeshare. And halfway through it, I'm just like, oh, Lord. They keep asking me questions. I'm lie upon lie upon lie upon lie. <laughs> like, do you make this much? Do you have, are you interested in going to this place? Sure. All the way, I'm just waiting to like say at the end, nah, I'm good. I'm not interested. Give me the tickets. But halfway through it, I, it's just this complete embarrassing moment that I have with Stefania. And I just say, I just stopped late. Look, let's just stop. Like, 
I make like $24,000 a year. Like, we're not interested. We just came for the tickets. Um, and it was mad couples around us that were just like, yep, yep. You could tell they were just waiting to get to the end and say no. And I was like, I can't do this. Uh, it was the most embarrassing moment uh, that we had on our honeymoon. Uh, the lady had grace, though. She gave us tickets anyway. I was like, oh, praise God. Um, but even now, we find ourselves in a tough season of marriage. We have a special needs kid who's two years old, and uh, and it hasn't been easy. I want to say I've been the best leader to my wife. I mean, if you asked her, if you, and she was really vulnerable and transparent with you, she would probably say, man, there's times when, uh, like, that I feel like multiple occasions where Brad has not uh, 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 been the most supporting. She might tell you that she's felt forgotten. She might tell you that she's felt unseen, maybe even a, a few times emotionally neglected. And yet, this past Christmas, in this season of life, she gives me this, this wallet. And on it, there's this inscription. It says, to my husband, I didn't fall in love with you. I walked into love with you with my eyes wide open, taking every step along the way. I do believe in fate and destiny, but I also believe we are only fated to do the things that we choose in a way. If I did anything right in my life, it was when I gave my heart to you. I wish I could turn back the clock. I'd find you sooner and love you longer. And I remember receiving it. There's a lot going on when I received this gift. We was at her parents, we was at her sister's house, and a lot of people running around. And I'm just having this moment because I realized I have not led her that well. And yet she is expressing this trust in me. What was at work here? Why is there still love and trust? I believe it because she understood that we've always been deeply flawed. We've always been imperfect, but we understand that love is not controlled by imperfection. It overrules imperfection. Love also makes room for imperfection. You see, Paul and Barnabas are in conflict. They are stubborn leaders in this moment. They are leaders divided on an issue. Rarely do we look at something like this and think, man, we're on the right track. But truthfully, they are. Because they don't let this conflict excuse them from loving the churches that they've been called to. Paul and Barnabas and Mark are not the ideal leaders in this moment of Acts. And yet, in the second half of verse 4, they are commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. They are blessed by the church to go. And I'm not saying this passage is a prescription like yeah, just go and be in a bunch of conflict and go, keep going in mission. But I am saying it highlights this truth. The mission of God will always have space for imperfect leaders. The love of God will always have space for imperfect leaders. This is the grace of God to us. And we must get rid of our internal formulas that do not include this grace. And if we do. If we are able to accept this call of God to, to love, though we are imperfectly, to go, though we are imperfect, I believe this will also produce another conundrum, and it is that we will engage in mission imperfectly. 
so the first part of this passage, it, it rubbed against my leadership formula. And then I, I think what it looks like to go into mission, like to do the work of God, it rubbed against that too. It, it, there's a little bit of overlap, but there's something distinctly different about, uh, in, something distinct in this passage about the way they go into mission. They go divided. And that seems like the wrong way. When I, my perceived formula for mission, so what I believe has to be true for good mission to happen. I think first, good leadership. Now, that's already messed up my formula, like Paul and Barnabas messed that up. Um, great strategy, uh, good community, uh, like-mindedness. So, like, together, like, one vision, we agree, and we're going, right? And that is good mission. And if we put conflict in the formula, good mission can't happen in my, in my formula. I know, this, I know all of y'all may not have this issue, like your, your formula is perfect. But mine, my formula says that if conflict is there, that, that's not a good formula for good mission, for mission, the mission of God to go forward. In this passage, there was a lot of friction, very little uh, uh, like-mindedness, it seemed like. And agreement is important to me, y'all. But they don't go in agreement. They move while in disagreement. And this feels wrong. And I might even argue that I think this is wrong. That this might, this, this seems like the worst way to go. But still, they go. I'm just thinking, if this is me, if this is like underground, like if I put it with us, if this is the underground, I'm like, man, what did this moment feel like? It feel like, man, we need to go get the governing elders. We need to, like, get some prayer warriors to pray. Like, we need to get this thing right before we go to, like, strengthen other micro churches. Like, how are you going to go when your business ain't right? Right? Are y'all silent because y'all convicted or, like, I'm wrong? I'm by myself? Am I? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Hey, 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 uh, Creed, I release you from your silence. Help us out. Let's go, Creed. But this feels wrong. And yet they go. I believe they go because conflict is not meant to hinder mission. I think they go because I believe conflict is not meant to hinder mission. Do y'all remember uh, lunch lines in, 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 in elementary school? You remember lunch lines? Yeah. What's the most important? What, I mean, I should say lines in general. Uh, uh, I remember lunch line was the most important line. That's the line you wanted to be up front for, right? Like you didn't, you ain't nobody butting me when it comes to lunch line. Like all bets off. Even my best friend, you gotta stay where you at, sir. You cannot be buttoned today. So I remember maybe the 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 most intense time for like for the lunch line was when you had lunch after recess. So like y'all was at recess and then you ready for lunch. Cause after recess, you don't went, I went buck wild in recess. Like I'm in the sand, sand in my head. I've been, I've been on the jungle gym. I've been on the basketball court. I'm, I'm the stinkiest kid in the school after recess. And so um, the lunch line was important. And it's like, I walked around with like this sixth sense for, for like uh, when it was time to get in lunch line. It's like, I could be doing anything. Soon as the teacher said, time to, time to uh, line up. Gone. I'm in there. I'm in there like swimwear. So I'm 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 running. So that was that mad dash. It's like time to line up and everybody running. And I'm I would book it to the line um, because I wanted to be first because I'm hungry. 
I'm tired. I need to eat. Everybody wanted to eat fast, especially after recess. And the biggest injustice was if somebody butted you. Clearly, I beat you to the line, and now you're trying to butt me. Like, that ain't going to fly. Like, like there would be, it, it was so amazing because it just not, it wasn't you that felt wrong, but everybody that was behind you felt wrong. And so if somebody butted you and you had them supporting you, they had to get back to the back of the line. But you know what always impressed me with, uh, with lunch lines? What always impressed me was that one kid, that one kid, everybody running the line, and they just chilling, just walking to the line. They don't care if they land in the back. They just walking. They're walking. And what impressed me the most is that they would walk up to the line and they would get there and people would be running up and they'd be like, yeah, you can go ahead of me. Yeah, you can go ahead of me. Yo, yo that, that kid was like a saint to me, like an angel of God. Like who is this kid that can be so hungry and yet just like, yeah, you can go ahead of me. In fact, most of us thought, man, something wrong with you. Like something is wrong with you. Nobody thought much about that kid. But I think there's something kingdom about that kid. They are encountering a conflict of hunger. Their physical body aches, and yet they choose to be selfless. See, my formula for mission often starts with me being okay. My leadership has to be good. We have to be good. Things have to be good in, in, in our like missional community. But mission cannot start with us. It shouldn't start with us. It starts with God, and then it start, then prioritizes like that is the needs of those we're called to. And then it's us. Then it starts with the ones who are called. Paul and Barnabas shows us this. Their conflict does not keep them from the work of strengthening this, the churches. They do not think so highly of themselves to put their conflict above the ministry the Lord has called them to. And here's the catch. Unless you think they did that, that they just said, yeah, let's just give a pass on conflict. Uh, no, no, no. If you if you keep reading Acts, if you look at Paul's life, if you read some of his letters, you realize that they don't forget the conflict. Now, it doesn't document how they reconcile, but they don't forget the conflict. In fact, later on in a letter to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to come quickly because a disciple named Demas has deserted him. He's experienced desertion again. But he says, Timothy, this is what he tells him. Get Mark. Bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. He's reconciled with Mark. Our internal formulas can cause us to miss this in this passage, but it should free us to engage the mission of God selflessly. It should free us. It should tell you, like, look, even your worst, your worst conflict is not enough to God to hinder his mission. And I think maybe more personally to you is that we have ways in which we believe there's some conflict between us and God. And we think it excludes us from participating in the mission of God. And if anything, this passage is also saying, no, you are included. You can go. In fact, the paradigm of Jesus has always been, yes, you're sinful and perfect. Come with me. And disciples of Jesus experience healing as they come with him. It's not that they just forget about conflict or forget about their failures or how imperfect they are. It's that like in the going, they are healed. I think when we are able to like uh, get rid of our formulas and accept this extreme grace from God, we will begin to realize a third 
culture, community. Paul and Silas left. They were commended by the believers by the graces of the Lord. They went to Syria, uh, Cilicia. They, they go and they strengthen the church. They bring this word um, from the disciples that meant, like, you, you, you saved through Jesus. And they give this word about circumcision. And they meet, and Paul runs into this, this disciple, this well-respected disciple named Timothy, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. And Paul wanted to take him along, and this is where y'all, where we see a little bit of like, man, that's weird. Like you're telling people circumcision, you don't need circumcision, but then you ask this kid to be circumcised. That seems weird. I, 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 I think maybe to dispel in one sense, I'm not going to talk about this much. In one sense, that's just Paul saying, yeah, this is not, this is not a, you know, circumcision is not a requirement. But that doesn't he does not make it so that is like some kind of missional dogma that they produce in the Christian realm, because the people that they're called to is still the priority. And so with Timothy, uh, he would be more accepted by the Jewish community that they're going to be reaching. And so it's like whatever is needed to love them, to reach those folk, they're willing to do it. Timothy is actually pretty impressive to me. There's an impressive commitment that Timothy has. It is no easy thing to undergo circumcision. There is considerable pain that lasts a few days. And y'all, he is physically altering his body permanently for the sake of mission. And if you didn't know, uh, a fun fact, circumcision is not reversible. Circumcision is not reversible. Thank you, Creed. Let's go. <laughs> what is it that Paul sees in Timothy where he asked Timothy to take such a drastic step? I believe in one part is because Paul himself bears wounds and scars that will be with him for a long time. He understands that, man, Jesus, he bears wounds and scars that he's taken for all of eternity. And so this the idea of physically altering his body is not that big a deal. It's what a disciple does for the sake of those they're called to. But also, I think Paul, uh, he he sees uh, Timothy as what we would call a third culture kid there's something about the 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 flexibility that timothy has i want to invite the worship team up as i wrap this up what do i mean by this by like he sees timothy as a third culture kid there's a term for people who were raised in a culture other than their parents culture or other than the culture of the country where they were legally considered a native these folk have spent a significant part of their early development years in several different places. And they often are exposed to a greater variety of cultural influences than most of us, so much so that they feel that they are from either two or more places because their development, their psyche has been developed by these cultures that they've grown up in. And Timothy is a third culture kid. He has been raised in a both Greek culture and Jewish culture. We know that he's raised in the Greek culture because people know, like, oh, that's, the, that's a Greek kid. But his mom is actually Jewish. And we also, the other evidence is this, that, that, that he was raised Greek is that he's not circumcised. So obviously, there's been some influence on the Greek side because if, it was more, if he was more influenced by Jewish culture, he would have been circumcised. 
And yet he's following this, what some would think is new Judaism, but really is the way of Jesus. Like he's following this, this, this new way that's been birthed out of the Jewish nation. He's a third culture kid. No doubt he would have had to be flexible growing up like this, going in and out of culture. And just as it was inferred in this passage, he would be familiar with what would call that he would be familiar with what would cause rejection based on the norms of the cultures he shared. So I imagine that this circumcision makes sense to him. It's not out of the normal or the out of ordinary for him as it would be for us. He understands the normalcy of not having a normal. This is the third culture kid experience. And I think Timothy is a powerful, a powerful example to the missionary. A powerful example of what the missionary journey is supposed to be like. Y'all, as we are called to marginalized communities, schools, odd subcultures, and forgotten parts of the city, we should try to become like our third culture brothers and sisters among us. Those who give their hearts wholly to different cultures, different people. And yet they feel rejection in both places, but still feel at home in both places somehow. And isn't this the call of the missionary? To go to where God has called us and make home there, make family there, make those people our people. <laughs> when I was young, I like to say I grew up a, I grew up a, a country city boy. So Fort Myers, Florida was not really developed. And all around my house was like these thickets and woods. And so <laughs> I thought this was normal when I was growing up, but I realized it wasn't. But a common thing for us men that we would say each other, man, <laughs> I, I had four brothers, sorry. I don't know why this is funny to me right now, but uh, a common thing for us would say, hey, Vic, Zach, that's my brothers. Hey, let's go outside, let's go in the bushes. That was common for us. And it wasn't uncommon for my mom to be like, yo, where's Brad? He, oh, he in the bushes. Tell that boy to come out of the bushes. Sometimes we would go in the bushes and we would just sit in the trees. And we would just enjoy this place that usually is reserved for animals. And But we would, and we would just, it was our playground. It was a place of rest for us. Now, the bushes weren't always kind to us. I remember one time we, we liked to just climb in the trees and like explore the bushes but stay in the trees. I remember one time we heard like the sound of a gator. You know what a gator sound like? We knew what a sound of a gator was. That's what we was kind of country. We was like, oh, that's a gator. So we going in, we going in the bush, we climb the trees, and we have to cross like this little canal about seven feet wide. Um, it had just rained, so it was kind of deep. And we climb and we hear a tree snap, and my brother falls out of the tree into the water now all he knows is wait this is not where I belong two we just heard a gator yo I swear that boy walked on water <laughs> out of the bushes into the house before you know it, he was like out into the house the bushes weren't always kind to us 
I remember my run brother, he was trying to swing on vines. We were trying to swing on vines in the bushes, just trying to be uh, adventurous. And one time he swung. Well, I, I wasn't there. So all I know, I see my brother running in the house, holding his butt. Like, ah! he's like crying. And I'm like, what happened? It was like, man, he was swinging on the vine. It snapped. He fell on the stick, dude. He fell on the stick. I had a friend who tried to jump from one side of the bush to the next, fell, landed on a rock. And somehow, every time you got injured, you always had enough adrenaline to get to the house. Like, get to the house where mama would put some witch hazel on it. That's what she would do, just witch hazel. It fixed everything. We always came out of the bushes with welts and scratches because the, 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 the sticks would hit us and make us bleed. And so we always had scabbed legs. We didn't care. We always went back. It was a special place for us. There were so many memories of tree tag and there was memories of climbing to the highest part of trees and seeing places in the city that we hadn't seen before. And as little kids, this was this was majestic to us. It was wondrous. We, we had memories of building ramps and, and, and just riding our bikes and jumping into the bushes because we could. Had memories of Stealing tangerines off my Greenwich tree and going into the bushes and finding cool shade in hot summers. Enjoying sweet tangerines. We would tell jokes and stories to each other all day. Y'all, the bushes was a second home to us. Somehow, these inner city kids made the bushes a second home. Our hearts were there. When we commit ourselves to the work of mission, there will be both hurt and joy. There will be unlikely places that you see that this is unlike the home I grew up in. But if you go and if you stay and if you commit to the work of Jesus in those places, he will bring home into your heart. That place will be home for you. This is what we learn from our third culture of brothers and sisters. And no matter what the pain, home is still there. This is what it looks like to be part of the family of God. We wear our exhaustion, rejection, persecution, and suffering like majestic badges of courage. Y'all, these third culture communities that we can build these are places where we understand that sacrificial change even permanent change for the sake of the kingdom makes us more like Jesus where we understand that there is much suffering that we must endure to enter the kingdom but we still go where we always go imperfectly and we strain to put ourselves last even when everything in the world is ruling for us to put ourselves first ease third culture communities that we can build they are places where we feel our citizenship and home is both heaven and on earth and we long for the day where heaven comes down to earth and we all belong i believe our microchurches the microchurch that you lead is meant to be a place for that third culture kind of kingdom community previews into what will be eternally true and at the end of this passage it says that 
They delivered decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. The Lord grew the work. Though there was imperfect leadership, though mission didn't ha came out of a place of conflict, the Lord grew the work. Be encouraged, families. Our flawed leadership, our imperfect ways of doing mission, your microchurches are sacred vessels that embody a holy third culture that allows the kingdom, will allow the kingdom to expand and the world needs this. The world needs this. And so my question for you as we respond to the Lord how might God be pressing your heart to respond to him this morning? What formula do you need to give up? Maybe it is you need to make amends with the leader. Or maybe you need to make some kind of amends with your personal leadership. There's something in you that has kept you from either advancing leadership, saying yes to leadership, offering yourself to leadership. You counted yourself out and you need to realize the Lord is counting you in. You need to get, give up that formula in you that excludes you from leadership and accept the grace of Jesus. And for other of us, it is that we need to resolve some conflict. We need to keep going in the mission God has given us, but we need to also resolve some conflict as we go. Some of it is hard things, really hard things that we need to confront as we do mission. And the threat that we perceive is that it's going to hinder our mission, but God is saying, no, my grace is for you. I am more powerful than that. You go. You engage conflict and let me do my work. And then for some of us, you are that third culture kid where you for a long time have felt, where is my home? You have felt alone or out of place. And yet you are the best of us. You cross cultures with ease. You do not carry a bias for your own culture. And so you're able to go into different places and bring and, and establish home. And we need your voice and you need to use your voice. And Jesus is speaking something specific to you today. No matter how you feel God is asking to you to respond, I ask that you come to this table ready to respond to Jesus. Jesus, who in a way himself was a third culture kid. Jesus, who had his home with the Father and the Spirit. We had his home in heaven but chose to come to us to also make his home on earth. Jesus, who was different on earth, who came to his own, he who, who carried the divine and humanity in himself, came to those who were created by him, who also carried the image of God in them and who were human. And yet he was rejected. And yet he 
encountered permanent physical wounds and still chose that this will be my home. This is the place I will call home. This is the people I will call. This is a place that I love. And he died for us and he rose again with all power in his hands so that we could experience the fullness of the kingdom with him. And as you come to this table, I pray that all the ways in which we feel insufficient, that as you do business with Jesus, that he would fill you up. And he would whisper, oh, it's okay. And he would empower you. There are going to be people ready for, to do prayer ministry with you for some of the things that you've been engaging this morning. But may the table be a place where those of us who feel imperfect, those of us who engage conflict, find the grace of Jesus. And we know that the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, my body that will be broken for you, my body that I will have for all eternity. For all eternity, I will be a representative of heaven, but also be a representative of earth. I will bear my scars for eternity. He broke it and said, eat in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after supper as he poured it, saying, this is the new covenant, a covenant of grace, covenant of love, new covenant my blood as often as you drink drink in remembrance of me when you're ready those who are those who will <laughs> build this third culture kind of kingdom we are ready the body and blood of Jesus for you